believe you? Well, most of you can, and if everything works out this morning, I'm going to see if your eyes can deceive you for a minute, all right? Let's take a look at the screen up here, and what do you see first? Who saw a duck? Who saw a rabbit? Who's seen this before and knew what it was? All a matter of perspective, isn't it? A lot of folks may see it as a duck. Others may see it as a, uh, as, a, as a rabbit. Let's look at this next one that pops up here. Now, if you focus on one of the intersecting lines, you'll notice that it's clear. But if you look at it, and hopefully everybody can see it all right, when you look, when you move your eyes to another intersecting line, you'll notice that there's a little gray dot that appears in the one you were just looking at. And so you see gray dots everywhere except for where you're staring. I see some heads moving this way, so it must be working. All right, good. I wasn't too sure how it was going to do on this, uh, on this big screen. Tell me which dot is bigger, one on the left or the one on the right? Actually, they're both exactly the same size. It just appears that the one that's surrounded by the large gray circles is smaller or the one that's surrounded by the small gray circles is larger all a matter of perspective but both of those are the exact same size one more eh, maybe a couple more the inset bar the gray bar does it appear to get darker when you move from the left to the right well, the reality is, is the inset is the exact same color all the way across. It's just the background that changes. And as the background changes, it appears that the inset changes as well. All right, before we pop this next one up, here's what I want you to do first. All right, there's going to be a little circle that's going to be moving around. And I want you to, use, I want you to follow the movement of the, of the circles with your eyes. And tell me if you see anything that stands out. So go ahead, Chris, and pop that one up. If you follow the movement, all of the little dots stay purple. All right? Now, refocus and look at the little cross in the middle and focus only on it. Those little purple dots turned green, didn't they? I promise it's all, the same, it's all the same color, all right? Now, I'm going to do one more, and hopefully this works. Chris, you can move the screen or black it out for a second, but here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to, some of you have seen this before, haven't you? I want you to focus right in the middle here, all right? And when I turn it on, I just want you to, to I promise I'm not trying to hypnotize anybody, okay? And if somebody starts, you know, clucking like a chicken or something like that, then this has went beyond my intention. So look right in the middle, and I'm going to let it run for about 30 seconds. And as soon as I stop, I'm sorry, the only thing you can look at is me. So go from here to look me right straight in the nose, all right? So just focus right on this circle. Right on this circle. been about 15 seconds 10 9 8 
seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. All right, it must have worked. For those of you off on the side, my head just got bigger. Now let's get it back to the right side, all right? Look at it here for about 30 more seconds. Just focus right on it, right smack dab in the middle of it, okay? Don't anybody get motion sickness, all right? I don't have any Dramamine. We'll do about 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. In the words of the A-team, I love it when a plan comes together. It's amazing what we think we see sometimes, isn't it? It's amazing that our eyes can deceive us in so many, so many ways. Now, sometimes it's an optical illusion like this. I mean, obviously my head didn't grow or it didn't swell. A lot of times, though, it's just a matter of how we look at things, the perspective from which we see these. And so... If it's an optical illusion or if it's something that's something that's very, very serious, something that is sometimes that we, we may find ourselves genuinely in a situation where we don't understand. We don't understand the surroundings. We don't understand what's next. We don't understand the information we've been getting. We just, we just don't know. Oftentimes those situations seem, the important word there is seem, sometimes those situations seems to have no resolution until we look at things from a different perspective. And that's what Paul does in chapter 3 of Ephesians. He helps us to look at things from a different perspective. In Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul gives us a great deal, a great deal of information. He's primarily what we may call teaching our head. He's given us true information about the nature of salvation. He's given us information that, that God is present within the context of the Trinity and that he's been working our salvation from eternity past through eternity future. He's given us the information that it is by the means of grace that salvation comes and that faith is our response to that grace. He's given us the information that spiritually, that salvation makes spiritually dead people eternally alive and that those New, living people are being built into a temple of God. And that genuine unity, genuine unity comes through a relationship with Christ. All tremendous information. Very theologically and doctrinally deep and solid. 
It's a genuine renewing of our minds. It's a genuine understanding in that now we can begin to think rightly about salvation. But in chapter 3, chapter 3, Paul changes his perspective. In chapter 3, his target for teaching is not so much the head anymore, but it is the heart. Paul shifts, he focuses, he changes his teaching here from giving us information to teach us how to translate that information into, into values, into our integrity, into our reactions and responses to situations, especially situations that we may not fully understand. Paul talks in this chapter about a mystery, a mystery that has been shut up, it has been closed up for generations, but now, now Paul says through the prophets and the apostles, it's been revealed. It's been, it's been opened up. You know, beloved, every time we encounter a, a mystery, we, we live one, we watch something on television, we, we see an optical illusion, and we think, how did that happen? How did that happen? What I really think this chapter here is, what I really think this chapter here is, is that Paul is not so concerned about the how, but what he's really concerned about is the wow. The wow. Remember that feeling you had when you thought my head was getting bigger? I saw your reaction. I heard the laughter. Hang on to that. Hang on to that for just a second. Because if an optical illusion that takes 30 seconds for us to conduct in here can make us go wow like that, where do we see what God does? Where do we see what God does? We're going to look at this this chapter by, by sections, by about four different sections. I'm going to read them individually. And what I want us to see here is how Paul, how Paul changes our perspective and how the information that Paul has given us in chapters 1 and 2 can begin to change the way we feel and the way we act and the way we care. So I'm going to start with Ephesians chapter 1, verses I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Paul starts this chapter saying, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
There's three things here that Paul changes perspective on. One is his perspective on prison. His perspective on prison. He says he is a prisoner. We know that Paul, when he writes this, is in a Roman prison. He's in jail right now as he's writing this. It's probably during his first prison stay in Rome. And yes, if he had a first prison stay, that means he had a second prison stay. But that's not the only time he went to prison. We know he went to prison for preaching in Philippi. We know he went to prison for preaching in Jerusalem. We know he was in prison in Caesarea. It seemed like more often than not when Paul preached, he went to prison. Now this is just a side note. But if American preachers landed in prison for preaching the way Paul did, I've got a feeling there'd be far fewer preachers. But I also have a feeling that they would be far more invested in preaching the gospel. Paul, however, in this chapter, chapter 3, gives us a new perspective on being in prison. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. A prisoner of Christ. Paul is in a Roman prison on trumped up Jewish charges, yet he identifies himself as a prisoner of Christ. Captive, captive by the Lord of Lords. Captive by the Lord of Lords on behalf of, for the purpose of, for the reason of, in place of you, he says, Gentiles. Folks, we gotta, we got we to gotta hear what's happening here. The one author I was reading through this, he says, Paul is captivated by God's goals. He's willing to sacrifice privilege. He's willing to sacrifice merit. He's willing to sacrifice his life for the sake of being captivated by the ministry of Christ, for the sake of being captivated for the preaching of the gospel to the worlds, to the nations, to the Gentiles. Paul looks around his surroundings and he says, I'm not in prison because of you Romans. I'm in prison for the sake and for the cause of Christ. He tells us why in the next section. He calls himself a steward of God's grace. A steward of God's grace. Now we hear a great deal about stewardship. We hear a great deal about stewardship, especially in the giving of resources and, and specifically financial resources. Stewardship to the work, the kingdom work of a local church. And I know you all have heard this before, that a, that a steward, a steward is the manager of someone else's resources. A steward is someone who is given something by the master, and his or her responsibility is to manage that and care for that. And Paul's proclamation here is that God has given him life, and that God has given him a purpose and a mission and a message, and Paul's responsibility 
Paul was responsible for every ounce of commitment that he could muster. He was responsible for the management of that message. The management of that message, namely to proclaim salvation to the Gentiles in the name of Christ. Now, folks, you all listen up because you won't hear this very often. God doesn't want your money. He wants you. God doesn't want you to come to church. He wants you to be the church. He doesn't want you to study the Bible. He wants His Word to come alive in His church. And when we genuinely, when we are genuinely committed to the stewardship of what God has given us, when we count ourselves prisoners of Christ for the sake of the world, then our resources, our time, our efforts, our commitments, those things will follow. What God wants and what Paul says he's given is himself. A prisoner of Christ, a steward of God's grace. And in this last section of verses here, we see what Paul was so captivated by, and that is the revealing, the revealing, the uncovering of this mystery. The mystery, the mystery that the Gentiles were fellow heirs of Christ, that they were one body and uh, one body and one body of Christ. Now, folks, that doesn't mean quite the same thing to us that it would have meant to these Gentile believers. Doesn't mean the same thing. This is, a, this is an outlandish idea that Jews and Gentiles are one, and they are one in Christ. This would have been crazy outlandish for the Jewish believers because they recognized they were the chosen race all the way back in Abraham, and they had the law, they had the temple, they had the sacrifices, and these Gentiles, they were pushed out. And these Gentiles had been pushed out for generations and generations. They never believed that there was ever a way that they could be part of the family of God. And Paul says the mystery is this. We are one body. It's unimaginable for this Gentile audience that those who were once brought from death to life, that now they are together, now they are one that the body of Christ made of both Jews and Gentiles are our joint heirs. What an incredible perspective. What an incredible perspective that Paul has on being in prison. Paul needs them to see. He needs them to understand. He needs them to see that this is not a this is not an optical illusion. This is not something we put on the screen and we get we get surprised at because the unexpected happens. He needs them to see that this is reality and that this is eternal reality. And because this is reality, we are wowed by God. Wow. See, only God, only God brings that together. And so Paul says, I'm a prisoner, but it's of Christ. With a stewardship 
to share the mystery of the gospel with the Gentiles. Next thing we see, Paul gives us a new perspective on proclaiming the gospel. Let's look at verses 7 through, uh, I think it's 13. 7 through 13. Of this gospel, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, for which, or which is for your glory. A new perspective on proclamation. The first thing Paul says is, I was made. Paul opens this section of this passage up by saying, I was made. Paul was made. You know, friends, we, we live in a world, we live in a culture today where we are expected to make something of ourselves. Our values, our wealth, our worth, our success, our victories, our happiness, our everything is fully our own responsibility. Yet Paul, in these verses, claiming the highest honor in creation, in these verses Paul said, I was made. I was made. Paul didn't make himself a preacher. He didn't make himself a missionary. He didn't even make himself a Christian. He didn't make himself a prisoner. He didn't make himself a steward. He didn't make himself a carrier of the, of the mystery of the gospel. Paul says, I was made. You know, beloved, I think too, too, too many times I fear that we're trying to make ourselves, we're trying to make ourselves good Christians. We're trying to make ourselves good leaders, good teachers, good preachers and many times folks this is to our detriment we can't make ourselves saved and we can't make ourselves good but but if we will follow the commands of Christ if we will follow him in his word if we will be in communion with him through prayer if we will practice biblical fellowship with a bible teaching local church the Bible promises us, He promises us, Jesus is going to tell us, He makes us into whatever He desires. He is the one doing the making. And Paul, as he starts to talk about this message, he doesn't say, I made myself a preacher. He said, I was made. The second thing he gives us a new perspective on is the essential quality of humility the essential quality of humility Paul as a preacher is the one 
who's standing in front of crowds. He's standing in front of people, sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands. Sometimes it's the king. Sometimes it's the lowest in society. And so Paul says in verse 8, I am the very least of all the saints. I am the very least of all the saints. Paul says earlier in this chapter, in the early verses of this chapter, that the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles had been revealed by the Holy Spirit to the apostles and prophets, not the ones of old age, not the ones that we may call the Old Testament, he says, but of the apostles and prophets of today, now, recently. Paul's talking here about guys that we know of. We know the Peters, the James, the John. We know guys like Bartholomew, Andrew, Thomas. We know guys like John the Baptist. He's talking about them. He's talking about Stephen who preached and Paul presided over his own execution. He's talking about Philip who took the gospel maybe very, very first to a non-Jewish culture in his interaction with the Ethiopian. He's talking about these folks that the Holy Spirit has revealed this mystery to. And he says of himself, I am the least. You see, he recognizes Peter was a fisherman. But when Paul looks at himself, he says, I was a persecutor. He understood that Matthew was a tax collector for the Romans. But he understood that he was a killer for the Pharisees. Paul understood. Paul understood that, that what he was among all those that were called. He says, I, I am the least worthy. What a tremendous amount. What a tremendous amount of humility in Paul's personhood. And you know, friends, I think that's why we're still listening to his message today. I think that's why his message still speaks to us today. Because Paul's life was one that was transformed by the gospel. He didn't pull himself up by the bootstraps. He didn't strive to be whatever he wanted to be. He humbled himself before the Lord and was made a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I was made, and I am the least. And the last perspective on preaching that we gain from Paul here is that as Paul is preaching the manifold wisdom of God, it was according to God's eternal purpose. You see, Paul was preaching for eternity. Paul was preaching for eternity. Friends, you're not going to find how to live your best life now in Paul's writings. You're not going to find 10 steps to living a fulfilling life in Paul's writings. You're not going to find a list of policies, policy measures to implement on how to stop violence in our culture. You're, you're not going to find in Paul's writings a list of rules to keep in order that you may live a moral life. 
You're not going to find steps to financial freedoms or happy marriages or fulfilling careers or how to get along with your neighbor or how to enjoy today. You're not going to find those not in Paul's preaching. What you are going to find is that a relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ will alter your eternity. It will alter your eternity and that will alter your temporary. Your temporary that we live right here. Paul is not so interested in fixing your life as he is in fixing your eternal life. Why? Because happily married, gainfully employed, non-addicted, friendly neighbors, and debt-free people go to hell every single day. But when we know Christ, when we know Christ, we can be better stewards. We can be better neighbors, better spouses, better employees. Yes, we can be all of those, but that's not the eternal purpose of the gospel. The eternal purpose of the gospel is to realize the eternal relationship with Christ Jesus. Paul was preaching for eternity because there, he says in the latter parts of these verses, is where we find a boldness to live. There, in Christ, we find the confidence to live in our faith. There, in Christ, we will not lose heart even even when we're suffering. A new perspective. A new perspective on prison leads Paul to a new perspective on proclamation. And that leads Paul to a new perspective on praying. Read with me verses 14 through 19. He says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. A new perspective on praying. You know, the reality of this whole chapter, the reality of this whole chapter is that Paul's been trying to get into this prayer in verse 14. If you'll notice verse 14 and verse 1 start with the exact same phrase, for this reason. When Paul opened up chapter 3, or what we call chapter 3, he wanted to open up into a prayer. But he got into it, and he says, I've got to say some things first. And it takes what we call 14 verses until he finally gets to that prayer. For this reason. The reason that Paul is praying is the beauty, and the majesty, and the glory, and the holiness, and the mercy, and the living 
giving love of the gospel that Paul has, has so intimately described in chapters 1 and 2. He says, for this reason that God from eternity past has been working for the pleasure of His good will to save humanity for the praise of His glory. He says, for this reason that in the finished work of Christ on the cross and through His tomb we can be sealed by the Spirit of promise and that we who were dead and alienated and children of God's wrath can be alive and unified in Christ and not become not become the target of God's righteous judgments, but rather become the temple of His dwelling. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knee. The first perspective that Paul gives us in prayer is a focus on the Father's majesty. A focus on the Father's majesty. Ah, bow. I humble myself in His presence. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is the creator, the sustainer. He is the giver of life and the giver of eternal life. The Bible says in Him is every family in heaven and on earth named. He is self Existent. He is transcendent. He is imminent. He is immutable, never changes. He is eternal. He is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. He is the one. He is the one. In the words of Dr. S.M. Lockridge, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. That is the reason that Paul bows his knee. His perspective is on the majesty of the Father. And we may remember when Jesus teaches his disciples, he says, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy, holy, holy be your name. His prayer brought him to his knees. Because of the majesty of his Father. The second thing we see in this prayer is that he focuses on the Father's resources. He focuses on the Father's resources according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. You remember a few years ago the movie National Treasure? You remember when they finally got down there and they found this great big huge dark room that it was filled with thousands and thousands of years of gold and art and statuary and treasures all the way down. I just wonder, I wonder what it would look like if we got to look into the storehouse of God's strength. If we got to look into the storehouse of His power, of His faith, of His, of his love. I wonder, would the, would the room ever end? Would we be able to, to see the ceiling? I wonder, would we be able to find the nearest exit? Paul 
focused on the Father's majesty. And as he prays, he's focusing on the Father's resources. And then thirdly, he focuses on the Father's love. He says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Folks, his love stands outside of reason. His love stands outside of comprehension. His love stands outside of the academy. It stands outside of philosophy and psychology. It stands outside of biology and astronomy. It's incomprehensible. We cannot fully know, but his love is fully demonstrated. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says, God who demonstrated his love for me, and that while I was a sinner, Christ died. We can't mentally, we can't mentally or cognitively know it, but we can see it demonstrated. We can experience it. And these three things leads us to the last change in perspective, and that is on God's promises. Look with me at the last two verses, verse 20 and 21. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Now to him who is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever. Amen. Beyond imagination. Beyond imagination. Far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Beloved, we have no idea. We can't dream big enough dreams to see what God desires to do through his church. Our minds can't comprehend it. Whatever the greatest thing you can think of, it's beyond that. Whatever the greatest thing collectively we could think of, it's beyond that. It's outside the realm of our understanding. We can't begin to imagine what God has for his church and that's where it's at the glory is in the church he says it is in the church to him be glory in the church the church of Jesus Christ every single unimaginable promise that God gives to you and me is for his glory that his church that his local church that we can be that beacon in the darkness, that we can be that lighthouse on a stormy sea, that we can be that compass for the wayward, that we, through His glory, by His resources, can draw the world to see and know 
and light and life of Christ. It's beyond our imagination what he wants to do in this church now and forevermore. From generation to generation is the last thing Paul says here. From generation to generation. Folks, you know the very best thing that you can do for your kids the very best thing that you can do for your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your grandkids to the 10th, 20th, and 50th generation. The best thing you can do for your kids is to know Christ and the power of His grace. From generation to generation, to know Christ and the power of His grace. We look at this picture again. Some of us see a duck. Some of us see a rabbit. Maybe some of us can see both. You know, oftentimes we look at the truths of Scripture and we see the perspectives of things that we should learn and the things that we should do. But we miss. We miss the wonder. We miss the we miss the all. You see, some of you are looking at this picture right now and you're saying, I wonder how that artist did that. How did they get the lines in there? How did they put the ears or the beak in the right place? How did they get the eye to be able to go, how, how, how? Here's what I want us to worry about just for a minute. Let's not worry about the how. Let's worry about the wow. Whether it's a duck or a rabbit, God created both. God God created both. And I want us to think for a moment that God, God has a plan, has a purpose that we can't even dream about. We can't imagine enough imagination about it. Think for a moment. Think for a moment of God's love that is incomprehensible. Think for a moment. Think just for a moment that God's message is not a temporary fix. It's eternal life. Think for a moment as we regain a new perspective. Don't let our eyes or our mind or our circumstances dictate the perspective of our view of God. And just for a moment, just for a moment, Let's not worry so much about the how. Let's stand amazed in the wow. Father, this morning we 